Over when my dog wants more treats. <laughs> I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, uh, and purveyor of everything the ID Discovery Channel makes. <laughs> what does that include? Oh, uh, Nightmare Next Door, Deadly Women, Forensic Files. Uh, sometimes they'll just do a real stretch. We were talking about this. They'll just be like, um, I don't know, uh, murders that happened in um, backyards. Whole series. <laughs> Back- backyard murders. Backyard murders. Like, they'll just, like, make stuff up, like, just to, to be able to have a new series, and it works. Or honestly, there's probably just enough backyard murders to right. fill a few seasons. Cruise ship stabbings. Well, You're that like, happens a lot, because that's international waters. <laughs> it's just so specific. Just Between Us is a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. What's, uh, what's going on? Uh, you know, my hair's really grown in. So that's sure. Still, my hair's like long again, and I feel more like myself. It's exciting. Are you going to grow it down to your butt? I'm going to grow it uh, like bottom of boob. Okay, like um, like so that you could be a mermaid. Absolutely. Sure. Originally, <laughs> I thought I'd just grow to the nipple, but now I'm like, fuck it. I'm on bottom boob. Cover the boob. I want go full in the water. Coverage. Yeah, go in the water. Let it hang over your boobs. That's like that to me was like I'm uh, wow. I'm a real adult woman because I my idea of it was just like Little Mermaid. I would do this thing in the pool where on the side of the pool I would like push myself up and then like flip my head back like mm-hmm. uh, Ariel, and uh, that was my idea of a game. <laughs> yes. Well, no, that was like in my mind. I was like, "That's a grown woman being sexy." But I think I think the Little Mermaid is maybe supposed to be like seventeen. Yikes! I don't she actually gets know. Married? She gets married. You're right. She might not be seventeen. But I but I just like the idea of the hair falling over your tits and then also flipping your hair back and having like the sun like silhouetted. Like uh, I was like, that's the epitome of sexy. Absolutely. I I still think that. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a great episode for you this week. This week, we're going to be talking to Esme Weijin Wang about schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and her book, The Collected Schizophrenias. And later, we're going to be discussing guilty pleasures. Do they exist? We'll find out. (laughs) I guess we'll solve it. Yeah, we'll decide. But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Yansu, New Jersey. Yansu says, I have a feminist problem. I have this friend that I was really close to in college, and we called each other best friends. I'm now 26, and I feel like we've been growing apart in a lot of ways. One of the biggest differences is our views on feminism. Uh Uh-oh. I know. She thinks a lot of feminists are actually self-absorbed idiots who pick and choose causes that only benefit them. I'm sure that some self-proclaimed feminists are not really helping the movement, especially if they don't understand the core beliefs and issues, but I believe that a lot of us are actually trying so hard to stay woke and make this world a better place for all people. Every time she makes a snarky comment about feminism, I cringe and want to stop talking to her. I tried to explain and make her understand a deeper view of feminism and feminists, but it's not been working. I don't want to think of her as a total lost cause, especially because we were so close once. What should I do? Please help. So there's two things going on. Yes. One is that your friend is uh, making fun of something you believe. So regardless of if it's feminism, if it's religion, if it's whatever it is, your friend is uh, shitting on you to your face (laughs) uh, and uh, feels fine to just uh, say that something that you believe in is bullshit 
to your face. Not even something you believe in, but a, a community you identify with. Right. Uh, two, uh, does she want like an edgy, uh, like cookie points for not identifying with feminism? <laughs> like, I think what's happening with her is a lot of probably internalized sexism, right? Oh, so yeah. She, I'm sure she thinks that she loves herself and that she's like a strong woman and probably even stronger because she doesn't need the term feminism. Sure. But in reality, it, it, she's coming from a place of self-hatred. If, yeah. I may, if I may be so bold. Um, and I also think that it's like, um, it's this ignorance of of misidentifying the term on purpose, right? Oh, yeah. So feminism does not mean that women are better than men. It just means that people are equal. And But because of the term itself and the fact that it has like female in it, people like to say like, oh, you think you're better than everyone else, which is not at all what feminism means. Well, it's also the thing that Sinead uh, Burke talked about on our episode with her, which is uh, it's not, it's about equity. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, uh, obviously women have been historically d- disenfranchised for years. You can't even, you can't say that that's not true. Let's say you don't believe in the wage gap, fine. But historically, white women got the right to vote in 1920. Uh, black women didn't get the right to vote until like the civil rights era. So like, to say, like, everyone's always been equal is factually and historically untrue. So, I mean, also the whole thing with self-absorbed idiots, there's those on every, there's those types of people in every movement. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, you're right, are going to misunderstand or use the the core beliefs. You know, I think there's, like, a lot of stuff where it's been used uh, incorrectly to sort of, like, sell this, like, girl boss or, like, lean in sort of narrative that really, I imagine, only... Uh, is, is off-putting to anyone who isn't a white woman. Um, I was going to say, I, I I would see how much he knows about intersectional feminism. That's Yes, exactly. Because that is really where the stuff gets good and where you, like, are actually going to learn and, mm-hmm. like, realize what's going on in the world and how there's there's different levels of oppression. And, you know, and I think that when you're in the more of the intersectional space, it's a lot less of the types of feminists that she has these issues with. Right. If, if you can... Have her be open-minded to reading stuff that isn't just, I'm going to assume largely uh, white women who are profiting <laughs> monetarily <laughs> off off the words of feminism. Like, you know, I think also there's this idea that, there, that it is like self-serving issues, but intersectionally, all of it dovetails, right? Like, you know, uh, the black women who have been murdered by police, that is an intersectional feminist issue. It's It combines like racism and feminism. You know, re- when we talked to Rebecca Nagel about um, indigenous women, I mean, the rates of murdered and missing indigenous women are so high just because uh, the police don't um, understand reservations and don't work with uh, the authorities on reservations. And that's a feminist issue. Like there's all these things that dovetail that I think when you go, oh, what are you guys worried about like selling t-shirts or whatever you're missing like the a huge chunk of what feminism is about and what it what it what issues it um mixes with i also wonder if your friend is coming from a place of like i don't need that like i think that some people are like so arrogant and cocky they're like oh come on, like, no one would ever treat me differently because I'm a woman. Like, I can hold my own. Like, I can I can get the promotion. I can do this. Nothing's holding me back. And it's just like, first of all, probably not true. And second, <laughs> just like a complete ignorance and ignoring of like what it's like for literally every other woman to be in the world. Yeah, it's just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean that you're better or that, um, that it's not happening. Exactly. And it might even be happening to you and you're just refusing to see it. You don't even notice, probably. Right, because you're ignoring this thing that is very present and in every room. 
Um, and, and honestly, it's in every room with you because of the fact that you hate feminism. Right. You know, what's going on there? That's internalized sexism. I always imagine it's like the woman who makes the sexual harassment complaint and then the woman who doesn't believe in feminism is like, oh, he was just joking. Like what? Like, And mm-hmm. it's this way of being like, I would never do that. I'm good. I'm a good one, which is this sort of like model minority type thing where you go, no, but I, I'm a good one. And I always, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, if you lick their boots, they're still not going to respect you. <laughs> right. When it comes to what to do with your friend, you know, I think the fact that you've already talked to her and that it's still not working is not a great sign. Mm-hmm. Look, 26 is still relatively young. Your brain is still forming, so I hope that there's hope for her yet. Uh, but also, you know, you don't need to surround yourself with people who think like that. Yeah, you don't have to hold on to a, a friendship just because you used to uh, be super close. And also, like, 26 is kind of an age where things start to formulate. Mm-hmm. Like, you do start to realize what's important to you. You do start to, like, it's okay. I think in, like, mid-20s is, like, honestly, you're kind of right on schedule for drifting apart. Like, <laughs> I think that's sort of, like, a thing that that happens. Um, and you don't have to feel guilty, you know? You don't have to, it's like with a relationship. Like, if you were dating this person, like, you wouldn't go, well, but it was so good for, like, the first six months. I have to keep this going for years and years and years. And, like, people fall into that trap. And, like, I don't think that that you have to do that. I don't think – I think you have to look at – like, Allison says all the time, you have to look at what is the relationship today. And there's the one hand of, like, I understand in theory that it's bad that she doesn't believe in feminism. And then there's also the reality of, like, whenever she makes those comments, it hurts you. It actively yeah. is hurting you. And you yeah. don't need to put up with that. Right. You don't need to be uh, – like, if you were someone where it, like, more rolled off your back and you were like, oh, it's annoying. She thinks that, but whatever. But you're saying that it it does – It's bothering it's you bothering enough to write you. in. Um, and it makes you want to stop talking to her. And I think that you got to listen to that. And I think that if she confronts you about it or if you want to talk to her about your reasons why you're backing off, I think you can say, look, you know, my my belief system and my values are really important to me, especially in today's political climate. And I feel like our values just don't align. And, and so it's hard for me to hear you say these abrasive and rude things about a community that I'm a part of and think is really important. So I think you stop being friends with her. You set up a new email account. (laughs) You then use that email account to send her very helpful think pieces about the value of feminism (laughs) and intersectionality. (laughs) And then, you know, you see if she gets back in touch. Oh, my God. Wow. I never. That's step-by-step advice. I never knew that part of our advice would involve a fake email address. It's surprising it took this long for me to use it. That's true. (laughs) If you want to submit your international question or start a fake email account, Send your email to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we have an interview with writer Esme Weijin Wang, who wrote the book The Collected Schizophrenias, which I love. And we're going to be talking about schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Stay tuned. Just between us. Just between us, it's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. Okay, well, this week our guest is Esme Weijin Wang, who uh, is an author of one of my favorite books called The Collected Schizophrenias. Um, We could talk about your other books, too, but hello. (laughs) Hello. It's so good to talk to you, and I am totally ready to spill spill all the beans about all the controversial things, share all the Hollywood, the hot Hollywood goss, and... um, Yeah, that's what this segment is. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, okay. So you, so I read um, the collected schizophrenia when it came out and then I reread it uh, for a project that I'm working on and it's like so, so good. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the book and like what it's about? Yeah, sure. So um, I never intended to write um, any kind of nonfiction book. My first book was a, was a novel. But as I was waiting for the novel to find a home, I started writing these essays about my experience with schizoaffective disorder. And I was researching kind of psychotic disorders in general, the schizophrenias, or what I call the schizophrenias. So schizophrenia, schizotypal personality disorder, schizoaffective disorder, just this kind of range of disorders that are related to one another. I started writing, uh, you know, different pieces that were based around the same topic. And uh, it started to kind of seem like a book. And then I submitted uh, 100 pages of what I had for um, for that book to the Great Wolf Nonfiction Prize, and I won in that year. And so uh, that ultimately became the very beginning of what would become the collective schizophrenia. Were you, like, open about schizoaffective disorder before? Like, did you plan on ever writing about it or being out about it? Um, I had been very kind of under wraps about my mental health diagnoses earlier in my life. My, my mental health diagnoses had changed a number of times. So there was kind of first the, the more, um, the more common depression and anxiety diagnosis when I was in high school. And then that changed to bipolar disorder. And I had that diagnosis for a long time. And I had the symptoms of schizoaffective disorder, which I call kind of a combination of schizophrenia and a mood disorder mm-hmm. um, for about eight years until it was actually officially diagnosed as schizoaffective disorder. So by the time it became schizoaffective disorder in my HMO medical Kaiser chart, um, I was already reasonably comfortable with talking about my own mental health. Why do you think it took so long to get correctly diagnosed? So I have a couple of theories there. One was that my psychiatrist during that period of time seemed to feel that it would be uh, stigmatizing and stigmatizing not only to my medical chart, um, so maybe for the insurance um, but I, I don't really know what that would have looked like, but maybe um, it could have had negative impact on my insurance policy. I don't know if it would have been, I don't know if it, I don't really know what that would have looked like, but I think that was part of her anxiety. Um, I think she was also afraid that I would feel more stigmatized, like I would have more self-stigma, just having this more intense uh, diagnosis that was more rare, that sounded more scary. Mm-hmm. For example, when I would tell her about my hallucinations, she never really used the word hallucinations. She would just say like sensory oddities and she would, she would really, you know, couch them in these euphemisms that I think were meant to help me feel more comfortable and less afraid of what I was experiencing. And yeah, so I think it was a couple of things, including her fear of uh, my official diagnosis changing under Kaiser, 
um, her fear of my own sense of self changing, and I think also her own stigma toward schizoaffective disorder. Oh. I, I would not nix that um, as a as a possibility as well. Because you talk in the book a lot about how you kind of look. Um, different than what people would assume a schizoaffective disorder or schizophrenic person would look like, right? Like you've mentioned a lot, or there's like parts of the book where you're like, I'm dressed up. I look nice. I have good fashion. Like I have lipstick on. Like there's this thing um, that comes up where like, you know, it might be that people see you and they go, no, that person doesn't have schizophrenia. That would be, that would be so outlandish. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but I talk about in the book, um, the degree to which I make a great effort to do those things because I don't want to be uh, considered, uh, you know, the kind of person that people think of when they think of a person with schizophrenia. And there are a lot of problems with that. Um, I'm very aware of how that's a kind of privilege that I have, the privilege that I have to, to dress nicely, to be able to, um, behave in a quote-unquote high-functioning manner. I think that's part of what was interesting to me in writing the book was to kind of dive deep into the complexities of my mind being both my greatest asset and also one of my greatest liabilities. What were some of the the first symptoms or how did you, how did, like, how was it manifesting in your life where it was different than bipolar disorder? Yeah, so my first uh, psychotic symptom was when I was in college and I was in the dorm bathroom and I heard this very clear voice just say in my ear, I hate you. And I, because hallucinations are, hallucinations are very fascinating. I like to describe them as kidnapping the senses um, because it, it really, really sounds like someone is standing next to you and just talking into your ear. And so I remember thinking, like, is this coming out of the pipes? Like, is this coming out of the drain? Mm -hmm. um, is there something going on with, like, the floor below me? Like, there was nobody else in the bathroom. I had to go through this whole logical um, rigmarole in my head. Um, and then when I finally realized that it was likely a hallucination, you know, I finished my shower. I, I left the I left the the dorm bathroom and I went into my room, which I shared with my roommate at the time. And I, I told her, you know, I think I heard a voice in the shower and her response was, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, which was not like not a helpful the response. response perhaps. <laughs> yeah. And she since apologized, um, for, for having said that, but I think that's also a very human response to have. And also a story about how we're not really told, um, how to respond in, in times like that, you know, when somebody does share with you something like that. What would so. you, what would your recommendation be to, to like a future roommate of someone going through something like that? <laughs> well, that was a really interesting thing. Um, I, uh, I recently did a talk, uh, with the, with the employees at Starbucks and, um, one of the things I wanted to share with them was kind of what are some good ways uh, to kind of respond if one of your coworkers or um, if your manager, one of the employees under you discloses a mental health diagnosis. And so I had all of these 
kind of steps. But I think that one of the main ones that I that I feel is important is to really just like thank the person for telling you this mm. piece of information that could have been very hard for them to to share with you. I mean, they very likely were contemplating for a long time, like, should I have told this, you know, should I tell this person this information? Like, this is really scary. Um, are they going to think of me differently? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's, a, that's kind of the main one I think of uh, to tell people right off the bat. There are others. But that's a big one. And I especially share that one because it's kind of easy to remember. Just like thank the person for sharing mm-hmm. it with you. Do you feel resentment towards your psychiatrist for not diagnosing you correctly for so long? Um, you know, I, that's a really interesting question. I, I, nobody has ever asked me that in all of my promotion <laughs> for this book. Um, <laughs> um you know, there are other things that I resent that particular psychiatrist for, but um, I think, yeah, I think in a in a small way I do. In terms of practicalities, it didn't really change that much because um, when it comes to things like psychiatric disorders, much of the time. Uh, treatment has to do with treating the symptoms as opposed to treating any kind of uh, like organic uh, source Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's not the same thing as like treating something that has like one source and you treat the source and then the symptoms go away. It's you're, you're kind of attacking the symptoms as they come along. So treating something that you think is bipolar disorder that you call bipolar disorder that has some psychotic symptoms doesn't look different than treating what you call schizoaffective disorder. So my treatment didn't really change uh, once my diagnosis did. What really changed was the the big diagnosis at the top of my the top of my chart, and really my sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when it comes to my sense of self, though, I think that's the big issue for me. Um, and I think I, I kind of feel like I, that's what I wish I had um, a better relationship with earlier. Yeah, because I always, you know, I, I've grown up with OCD and um, I got that diagnosis so young. And to me, always knowing what it was was so helpful, you know, because you, yeah. you can be like, oh, OK, so this is, thing is why I'm acting this way. So I feel like having that information being withheld from you, I would, I would feel really resentful <laughs> to not know what's going on in my own brain and have someone else know and not tell me. Yeah, I feel like, um, but I tend to like diagnoses because they let me know that I'm not pioneering an, uh, an experience that no one else mm-hmm. has, yeah. has gone through before, you know? So like if you, for, for example, uh, with OCD, if you're like, man, um, I just was driving home from work and I thought I hit and killed somebody with my car and then I obsessed about killing someone with my car all the way home and then I thought about it for like six hours afterward. Mm-hmm. What the hell was up with that? Um, and because your thought of what OCD was was like, I don't know, organizing your books or something. <laughs> like, like you wouldn't know that, like, that's a really common OCD mm-hmm. um, 
thing to happen. So you feel alone. Yeah. So then you just feel alone. Yeah. And I also think it gives it gives your thoughts more power because you're like, oh, these are real thoughts versus oh, these are my OCD thoughts. Yes, exactly. So then after you said that to your roommate, like what were the other symptoms that led to getting diagnosed? Um, I had a lot more hallucinations uh, and those lasted for a number of years. And then for some weird reason, instead of hallucinations being the primary psychotic symptoms, I kind of flipped over to having mostly delusions. And so uh, just kind of for the listeners, uh, hallucinations are false sensory uh, experiences. So seeing things, hearing things, sensing things. And um, delusions are false beliefs. So, you know, the FBI is out to get me. Uh, the government's implanted a chip in my, in my arm, stuff like that. Um, so I had a couple of delusions uh, that are actually, it, it's very interesting how some delusions are so common among people who have psychotic disorders, so they actually have names. So one that I had frequently is called Capgras delusion, and it's one it's uh, one in which the person who has it believes that their loved ones have been replaced by doubles. And so I had that one mm. quite frequently. Um, I would so just, terrifying. Every, it is really terrifying. So I would, um, everything would be fine. And then all of a sudden in this, just like in the blink of an eye or the snap of a finger, um, I would just look around and just have this feeling that everybody looked the same, but they were just robots or some kind of mm-hmm. doubles that had replaced the people I knew. And then it really came to a head in 2013 which is the period of time I wrote about in the essay Perdition Days uh, in in the collective schizophrenia is when I had this very intense and severe and very rare delusion called Cotard's delusion in which I believed that I was dead. And it was at that point that the schizoaffective disorder had gotten so bad that uh, my diagnosis changed. I was put on a waiting list for electroconvulsive uh, treatment. And I, we were trying every kind of medication and it was a very dark time. So uh, yeah, it was, it, that was kind of where it all got to be the worst that it has ever been. And I'm not even really sure how it got better, but um, somehow it turned around and through some miraculous combination of factors. How do the people around you convince you that, oh, we need to get you help? The delusions um, that I read about in the book, it's like, it's these things where it's so insidious because the people could try to convince you, but then that's part of the delusion where you're like, of course you're trying to convince me. So like, how do you, how do you, yeah. how do you work with that? Yeah, that's such um, an interesting and, and fascinating question. Um, this is a question that I think relatives of uh, like little, like loved ones of people with uh, psychotic disorders and schizophrenias are dealing with all the time. And often their loved ones who have schizophrenia don't have insight. And so they don't want to seek help. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very lost in their delusion. I found that I had a very 
kind of different experience in that I had these delusions and I believed them, but I was willing to seek help, not because I didn't believe the delusions, but because I was being so tormented by the delusions that I wanted to do anything to, uh, to ease the suffering of them, no matter what, um, even if I didn't really believe that the reality of them could be changed, if that makes sense. So, um, so my loved ones could say like, you know, you're not dead and you're alive. And I would say, okay, uh, you're not, that's not true, but I am suffering so badly that I am willing to do anything, including going to these pointless doctor's appointments to try and do the, because I was also able to come up with these amazing logical uh, Gordon's knots as well. So I would be like, I'm in the afterworld and I'm going to these doctor's appointments in the afterworld. And so like in these, in this dream of mine in the afterworld, I, maybe I can go to this doctor's appointment and, and have this suffering eased. There, there were these many loops and twists that I was going through. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. You know how like you have those dream logic that you have mm-hmm. when you're um in dreams and I feel like psychosis logic or delusion logic for me is very similar to that. What would you say is some of like the most harmful misconceptions about schizophrenic disorders? So I think uh what jumps to mind is the misconception that people with schizophrenic disorders are violent. And I think this conception is just reinforced by the media all the time because mm-hmm. you very rarely see articles in the news that are like, local person with schizophrenia sits at home and knits <laughs> or something, you know? Like, it's it's always like local person does some violent thing and they also were diagnosed with schizophrenia like three years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, they they will dump that information in their when a violent thing happens or some tragically violent thing happens, if that information happens to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, like all the other times when a person with a schizophrenic disorder or the schizophrenia, some form of the schizophrenia is, does not do that, um, none of that is newsworthy. And so uh, that's, that doesn't you know, come to mind. Um, but because it is reinforced by the news over and over and the media over and over and by movies. Movies, I was about to um, say. Yeah, movies and TV. It just is so, um, I don't know, pernicious and and awful. And I know that whenever I hear a news story about something, you know, very sad and violent happening or some kind of mass shooting, I always wait for the news the rest of the news to come in, like more information to come in. And I always worry that it'll turn out that person has some kind of um, mental health issue mm-hmm. um, and particular schizophrenia. So, And then the Republicans love to blame that instead of all of the guns. Yeah. They're like, yes, exactly. it's mental illness. And it's like, it's white supremacy, but go on. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Gosh. And then did you, I, I remember, didn't they say they wanted to create like a registry? Yes. As people. Of people yeah. with mental illnesses so that those people can't buy guns. Yes. I heard this. Yeah. And this is like a thing too. I mean, speaking of registries, like I um, have been touring a lot this year um, and traveling a lot for my book and my friends were like, oh, you're, you're flying so much. You should really get TSA pre-checked. And so I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I was going through the TSA pre-check thing. And of course, like question number six is, have you ever been involuntarily hospitalized for a psychiatric issue? Mm. And, um, and if so, look at to- the top of the screen. And at the top of the screen, it says, if you say yes to number six, you may want to reconsider applying for TSA pre-check. Because um, they're not going to approve like, you. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Also, what a weird way to phrase uh, it. Exactly. It's not even like don't apply. Yeah. It's like give us your money if you want to <laughs> apply, but we're not going to approve you. I mean, that shows kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of uh, and of mental illness, and also uh, it punishes you for getting help. Yes. Yeah. So, of course, people don't want to get help. And, of course, people don't want, you know, I have bipolar disorder and it took me a long time to accept it because I didn't want it on my file. Like, I didn't want it. I didn't want it listed in my medical history. And so that just keeps people from getting the help that they need if you punish them that way. Yes, it often so it so often feels like a punishment, whether it's because of involuntary hospitalization or um, when you're in a higher education, if you're going to college or university, um, if you're involuntarily hospitalized there and then you get kicked out of school. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a punishment. Yeah. Do you feel like you've seen there be more acceptance of like anxiety and depression where psychotic disorders are not getting more accepted? Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I feel like people, you know, all the time will joke about like their Xanax prescriptions and like, you know, they're, we'll talk about depression in this way that indicates that like, yeah, everybody has had depression or like, you know, I go and see my therapist for depression, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I think that's great. It is so much less stigmatized than psychotic disorders. You know, often people who are, who think of themselves as being very open-minded will um will balk at the idea of someone they know being diagnosed um with a psychotic disorder which i found out as um i would go to these very fancy uh literary events with like these very intellectual people you know who like subscribe to the new yorker and like think Mm -hmm. of themselves as being very progressive but then they would say the most awful things to me when they found out what my book was about um like not meaning any harm by it but just very ignorant very condescending like oh you know it's so nice that you're able to be out and that you're able to to speak in (laughs) such an eloquent way and to to, you know that you're not having these tics and things all of a sudden treating me like I'm a 12 year old for sure I feel like there's a narrative that with certain mental health issues like anxiety, OCD, depression, uh, you can go on and and function in society. And then there's this like misconception that if you have a psychotic disorder, you like can't properly function as an adult. Yeah. And, and for sure, there are some people who can't, and it's really important that those people get, are able to 
be cared for and that we find ways for them to to live. Mm -hmm. But I think I think it's also important to have a narrative, uh, which I hope I shared with my book, that there is a narrative that there are people like me who are able to do things, um, even though it is hard sometimes. And both both are deserving of humanity and respect, and I and also not stigma. And I think that's the the main the main point. Um, and why I love the the book so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> have you found a community of people who who kind of have had the similar experiences? Like the the closest community I've I've had is probably online. Um, there's a really great community of people with kind of severe mental health issues or mental health issues in general. I also identify really strongly with the chronic illness community. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I find that it's very helpful to have that. And even more than that, I think, I think it's really helpful to have people who don't primarily necessarily primarily identify as uh, having a, a mental health issue or a chronic health issue, but who are, you know, writers, Mm-hmm. but who also happen to have uh, mental health issues or chronic health issues. And then, you know, because then you don't always have to talk about mental health or chronic health or whatever, right. like when you get together. Like you can talk about like, I don't know, succession or whatever. I don't <laughs> sure. want succession, but like <laughs> you can talk about like whatever. Um, and then if you want to, you can also mention like, yeah, and I had a doctor's appointment this mm-hmm. month and, you know, this is how it went. So you can have these things in common um, and these commonalities are very bonding and lovely, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to make up your identity, which I think is just a great way to look at mental health issues in the first place. And that's one of the big things I say to people when they ask, like, what what would you like to say to people when they're first diagnosed? I always say, you know, remember that you're still you, mm-hmm. still left-handed, and you're, you still hate blueberries, and you still... <laughs> really love karaoke you know yeah. like it's who hates blueberries know, i love them <laughs> they're very expensive yeah but they still taste they good are very expensive. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing all of this i hope all of our listeners reach out to each other continue to talk about this and also get your book <laughs> yes oh thank you for having me well you're, we're not releasing you yet would you like to play a game show Sure, I love to play game show. Game show, game show. So this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are going to be the contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many questions as you want before determining what you would do in said situation. Uh, There's no points or winning. It's just a a journey. Okay. Uh, So the first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your significant other of two months admits that they never got rid of Tinder on their phone after becoming exclusive because it's a fun way to pass the time. They chat with people but never make plans to meet up. Also, they're unemployed. Would you stay with this virtual cheater? Wait, so they're still chatting with people on Tinder? Yeah, because they're, they're unemployed and bored. Uh, what are they talking about? Oh, hobbies. Uh, interests, but the movies. people they're talking to haven't think- they ever heard of like the internet? <laughs> yeah, they could do it. As I was right, they could do it on. They could do that same thing on Twitter. Well, they've gotten into a habit of being on Tinder before you met, and it's a it's a daily uh, social interaction they enjoy. 
what are these other people doing? Exactly. Like the people they're talking to. Oh, they think that they're going to date. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I feel like, okay, Gabby, I feel this is a, a sticking point because this is like a moral issue for these other people. Yeah. Like, that's not that's not cool to do to like another human right because they'll they're thinking they're gonna go on an amazing date and meet their soulmate and your person meanwhile is just leading them on you know boredom makes us do crazy things uh i'm gonna say not stay with this cheater esme yeah i would say i would say not stay with this cheater like two months is not enough of an investment i feel like and truly also, they don't sound that great. Well, you made the right call because one of those people they've been chatting with is their soulmate. Wow. So they so when you break up with them, they actually do meet their soulmate? No, instead they end up going out with your soulmate, who is also on Tinder. Oh, Esme, we forgot to mention, there's a world in which Allison knows who everyone's soulmate is. <laughs> it's an important part of the game. Here's our next question. Okay. Are they an alien or just rude? While at the movies, a random stranger sits next to you and whispers to let you know every major plot twist right before it happens. No. It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie, so there are at least six (laughs) twists. Oh, no. Is this person an alien or just rude? (sighs) And you can't move seats because it's a pack theater. Okay. I think they're just rude. Yeah, I think that they're just rude. And I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure why they would... So they are seeing the movie for the second time, and they just want to ruin it for someone? You don't know their motives. Okay, we don't know their motives. I do, but you don't. Oh, okay. Uh, I I think that they're just rude, and I'm not sure what their motives are. They hate you. Maybe it's like when someone hires a hitman, but someone knows you love twists, and they hired a, a movie. Oh, I just came up with a job idea. Movie hitman. <laughs> yes, you can hire a movie hitman for your enemies. Yeah, and you hate them, and you find out when they're going to the movie, and you hire someone to ruin the movie for them. That's a great idea. Thank you. Well, it's not the actual thing that's happening, though. Unfortunately, I, you know, I don't make the rules. But um, what happened is this person looked at you and thought that you you were too tender a soul to handle the twists, so they oh. were telling you ahead of time so you wouldn't freak out. So they're not an alien or uh, rude. They're just nice. They're a good Samaritan. Okay. Well, honestly, also. They're a bit too good of a good Samaritan, perhaps. Yes. Also, you do make the rules, Allison. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, our final game okay. is would you lie or tell the truth? While wedding dress shopping for your best friend, she finds a dress that looks horrible on her. Like really, really bad. But your best friend loves it and wants to get it. Would you lie or tell the truth? Also, she is marrying you. Oh, wait a minute. Why are you dress shopping with your future wife? Because yeah. it's progressive, ladies. <laughs> okay, I need to find out in which way does the dress look that. Like, for example, is her, like, breast falling out of the dress? Or is it just, like, it's a bad color on her? Just imagine the least flattering, most just abhorrent thing you've ever seen. Like, is it offensive to look at for, for like, Grandma Sue, though? Yeah, like, would your parents be like, what the hell? Everyone would definitely think it was very ugly, but it doesn't reveal too much skin. Okay. See, I okay, love— that that's what I was wondering. I love that you hopped to once it was a fashion question. You were like, I'm in. I'm listening. I have more. <laughs> I have things to say. Uh, so, first of all, I'm dress shopping with my partner. Yes. And the year is 2022. Okay, where that's like allowed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and did they ask me my opinion? 
Um, they it's one of those moments where they just like put the dress on. They're like, oh my god, I found it, right? <gasps> yeah, and they're like, ta-da! Yes, <laughs> shit. Wow. I mean, I think you just gotta go with what makes them happy, and you just gotta shut up. Even though you know yeah, that you'll be unattracted yeah. to your your wife on your wedding day. I don't think that any dress would make me that is that bad to make me unattracted to my wife on their wedding day. That's on sweet. Day. And that's the right answer. Wow, that's really <laughs> sweet. Wonderful. Wow, you really nailed this game, Esme. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for playing. Where can people find you? Um, people can find me. I am on Twitter at Esme Wang, and I'm on Instagram, where I just got verified. Woo! Woo! Okay. <laughs> at, at Esme W. Wang, and I am... Also on uh, my website at EsmeWang.com. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for talking to us. And um, I'm going to call you with any fashion questions I have in the future. Yeah, truly. (laughs) Yeah, please do. (laughs) Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about guilty pleasures. to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 Baby. Baby. Uh, so today I want to talk about guilty pleasures and why I personally think they do not exist. Oh, yeah, because what are you, supposed to be ashamed of the things you like? That's the basic mode that we're all in? And I think it's often used as a way to discredit and to give less value to things that women enjoy. Yes, uh, especially, I think, teenage girls. Oh, yeah. That's like, you know, uh, a certain type of music that isn't deemed hot highbrow or a certain type of uh, movie that isn't deemed highbrow. Just the um, the use of the term chicklet. Yeah, chicklet or chick flick. Or like, yeah, or like rom-coms aren't taken seriously. Why? And I, I think know. it's because women like them. Y- yeah, well, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's dis- It's a dismissive sort of term. Like, you never hear someone say like that great chick flick you're always like ah it's a chick flick you know right and no one's ever like my guilty pleasure breaking bad yeah <laughs> that's so true i never thought of that i was trying to think about like yeah nobody's ever like oh my guilty pleasure cube stanley kubrick's movies right <laughs> like you never would you never would think that it's always used for things that are like that you should be embarrassed about yeah and most often that stuff that like is is more likely consumed by women yes that's true I was I I've heard a lot of people on Twitter um, and like there's been a lot of articles and stuff fighting back against that, saying that like just because especially teenage girls are interested in something doesn't make it less uh, like less of a thing that people could enjoy. Yeah, I started thinking about it in terms of a lot of like the books that I read, Mm -hmm. because like I don't read like classics or like, you know, I don't read like great literature, whatever that is. I read a lot of like psychological thrillers and mysteries and I do read like what would potentially be under like chiclet and you know all of that stuff and for a long time I felt like kind of ashamed about it and I like I read all of the time but I was like well I'm not a real reader because I'm not reading like Dickens (laughs) or like you know I'm not like I'm 
like it doesn't really count what I'm reading. But Dickens like, is fine, but do you know Dickens was paid by the word? And so that's why his books are so long yeah, and wordy. I didn't know that yet. So like, it's not even like, oh, wow, he's such a genius. He was literally being paid by the word. And that's why they're quote unquote classics. <laughs> and so I, I, like, I had to come to terms with not judging the content that I was enjoying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, I was just thinking when you were talking about that, I was thinking about um, the... Uh, Stieg Larsson books, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and also Game of Thrones, and how those are are fantasy or those are uh, considered, you know, those are like thrillers like you were talking about. But I think it's because they're so like male and and written by guys and are like enjoyed by guys. Like nobody's ever like Game of Thrones is my guilty pleasure. Right. So the only part for me that's like, okay, well, like, I think reality TV gets used with that term a ton, mm-hmm. where that's, like, a guilty pleasure. And people are like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I watch The Housewives. It's my guilty pleasure. But honestly, life is so hard. Yeah. And if you can watch something and enjoy something that brings you joy, then the people that made that accomplish something. Oh, yeah. You can't – it can't be a guilty pleasure if you don't have any guilt. But, like <laughs> – Like, yeah, like, if you, like, it is very difficult, especially today, to maintain people's interests and to make something that people really like and want to return to. Yeah. And as as soon as you accomplish that, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, the editors of The Bachelor, uh, the editors of The Bachelor franchise deserve an Emmy. Absolutely. Like, I used to judge those shows, and I watch them now, and, like, the editing is so good. They're storytellers. They're storytellers. Absolutely. So, I don't know. I just, I mean, it is, like, it is interesting what is deemed silly until men like it. Absolutely. And, like, like it, again, if you like something, that is so great. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, how many shows have I started where I'm like, eh, I don't like this. And, it's, and there's so much pressure to watch it because everyone thinks it's so great. Mm-hmm. And I just want to watch Why Women Kill by Mark Cherry on CBS All Access. <laughs> But you know what? I fucking love Mark Cherry shows. I love me some Desperate Housewives. I yeah. love me some Devious Mates. And like, people, why is that a guilty pleasure? It's it, it's, it shouldn't be. it shouldn't be. But because it's soapy, yeah, people like associate it with like garbage. Yeah. When in reality, what those shows are doing is they're taking they're taking this genre of a soap and then like expanding it and turning mm-hmm. it into an hour-long drama with soapy elements mm-hmm. and comedy and complex characters. And, you know, Why Women Kill had a extremely moving AIDS plot oh. that I had, hadn't seen in anything else that wasn't explicitly about AIDS. Wow. Like, it was just one of the plots. Um, and it was, like, so moving, and it. it kind of made me think about that time in the 80s in a way I hadn't thought about before. And it was masked in this, like, Soapy hour long on mm-hmm. CBS All Access. Right, right, right. You know, but like you can do so much good and you can you can teach so many things through all of these like roots and genres that people might not necessarily respect as much as like Sopranos. Yeah, I just don't I just don't even know what guilty pleasure means anymore. Well, I think I think it means reality TV. It means sure. chick flicks. It means like listening to Taylor Swift and like. But meanwhile, try to be as successful as fucking Taylor Swift. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, you know what is you know what is maybe actually qualifies as a guilty pleasure because it's doing something you know is kind of bad. What? Like I'm redefining it. Like Kanye's early stuff. <laughs> where I'm like, oh, like, I know, I know, but it's also... Because the lyrics are problematic? Problematic, but also because of who he is now. Oh, yeah. So you're like, you don't, like, you don't want to, 
like I wouldn't want to get caught listening to it, but is like all of his like college dropout and graduation on my Spotify? Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like you're like, oh, like I know, I know, I know, I know. But I guess guilty pleasures we should redefine as as content made by people who have been canceled. Like truly though. Yeah. Is that what is that the new definition? Yeah, if you listen to uh, Michael Jackson's music, that's now officially a guilty pleasure. Whoops, well, here I am. I that oh, off the wall is very good. Woody Allen movies, guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Like that should that be what should it be is. That should be what it means. Yeah, because also like okay, so there's a bagel store that I that I love to go to and I and I love going there and it's close to my house and I'm so into the bagel store. And then I went into the bagel store and they had a big sign being like coffee with a car like the bagel store like loves police and I was like no and I was so devastated and then I told the person I'm dating like I can never go back to the bagel store and then they called me on Sunday morning I was in my car and they were like where are you going and I was like nowhere because I like couldn't think and they were like Gabby where are you going and I and then I I was like and they were like you're being so weird like for a full five minutes you're being weird like are you cheating on me like what is going on and I was like Okay, I'm going to the bagel store. <laughs> yeah, guilty like, pleasure should just be when you're compromising your morals for consumption. <laughs> That's what it is. It's like Chick-fil-A, and, guilty pleasure. Exactly. And they Amazon, were, guilty pleasure. They were like, are you going? And they were like, were you trying to lie to me about going to the bagel store? And I was like, the bagel store loves cops. <laughs> Like, that's a guilty pleasure. Yeah. So we, look, we redefined a term, spread it around on social media, uh, Mm -hmm. only use it for things that are morally bad, not just something that you enjoy. Exactly. Right. Not not reality TV, but if you are uh, going to a a police state bagel shop in your town. (laughs) (laughs) Tamika, want to come in and share your newly defined guilty pleasures? (laughs) So what do you view as a guilty pleasure or what are your guilty pleasures? I think I think your new definition is pretty fair. Mm-hmm. But the only guilty pleasure I can think kind of fits is me feeling guilty over watching people gaming. There's like all these platforms where you can watch people play video that? games. You I watch that? You watch people play video games? Because I'm terrible at video games, but I love them because I grew up with them. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. But now you don't have to struggle playing the game. You can just watch people play the game See, instead. I don't think that that uh, applies anymore. But I feel guilty because I'm so lazy. I'm not even going to play the game. I'm just no, going to watch people play. No, but you're enjoying it. You're enjoying your life. You have a yeah. great job. You work hard. You can watch people play games. But well, it, thank you, Allison. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Unless unless you're watching. I mean, but I thought you were going to say. If you're watching like PewDiePie. What's his name? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, like if you're watching like, if you're like, oh, I know this guy is a full Nazi, but I love the way he plays Bioshock. Then you that's know? a guilty pleasure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's not that far. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. I always wonder who the audience for that is it's you yeah yeah it's our producer wow and what is it is it that you are interested in their commentary or you just want to see like what actually happens as you move through the game i like the storytelling in games it's so much more complex now and i kind of grew up in that system like i had an older brother and Mm, older mm -hmm. sister who were very good at games so i was always the cheerleader anyway oh that's really sweet i got to experience the game with them so it's kind of nostalgic for me yeah i bet it's like calming yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. What do we rate this episode, folks? I rate it uh I rate it seven out of seven um seventy dollar we should all be feminist t shirts. Oh god. That's four hundred and ninety dollars. What a nightmare. Wow, I can't Pretty believe you did math. that. Thank you so much. Holy crap. Tamika? Um 
You just start sweating every time I, I know. ask you this question. <laughs> I know, because I think so hard about it the whole show. <laughs> Something Aww. clever. Uh, I'm just going to say uh, eight out of eight stars. Love it. Wow. Look, we love a perfect score. Star- stars keep coming back. <laughs> the oldest system in the book. And it works. Yeah. You know, sometimes, no, most old systems don't work, yeah, but exactly. the star system does work. Uh, what do you rate it? Uh, I rate it um, 11 out of 10 a destigmatizing books about mental illness. Oh, yeah, so pretty good. That was, she a, was she was so wonderful. She's awesome. I mean, my favorite part was uh, talking about the the stereotypes and the mis misinformation about schizoaffective disorders and schizophrenia, um, especially as someone who who uh, is on an antipsychotic. It is like you know, I had the same fears I had uh, that she said her her therapist had, or like you know, I have had the same uh, worry about people believing that I'll. Uh, you know, I'll be dangerous. It feels very problematic to me that a psychiatrist is afraid of of a stigma of a mental oh, illness. Oh, of course. And like, that she person, knows that. That person shouldn't be in that field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what was our funniest moment? Eh. I guess what, I think when we figured out what guilty pleasures actually <laughs> are, I think we solved it. And it was our most successful moment thus far on the podcast. So often we go, well, we're never going to solve it. And then this week we did. It was beautiful. Tamika, mm. did did we get any chuckles from you? Yeah, I think when, when Esme really got into hypotheticals, yeah. it was pretty funny. <laughs> oh my God, the wedding dress. Like all of a sudden she hopped, she sprung to it with a fashion question. I love it. Thank you so much to Esme Wang for being a guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. I forgot to say our killer theme music. The music remains killer. Okay. Wow. What if it was the one week you were like, I wasn't feeling it? Well, no, I just, Brendan's looking right at me. I'm so <laughs> sorry. Stitcher.